Before we begin this week's episode of Marvel's Pullist, we want to pay tribute to Chadwick Boseman, star of Marvel Studios' Black Panther, who passed away this past week at the far too young age of 43. We read Black Panther comics and stories on this show every week. We speak with writers and artists who have helped forge the character's story. And over the last four years, we see and hear Chadwick Boseman's voice, poise, emotion, and performance every time we read a comic with T'Challa. Chadwick Boseman was a superhero. He was a king. But most of all, he was a man. He gave life to legendary, heroic, historic, and complex characters from the MCU and beyond. He made his career playing major historical figures like Jackie Robinson in the movie 42 and Thurgood Marshall in Marshall. And off screen, he was a role model, an advocate for activism and social justice, an inspiration and real life hero to many. We join the Marvel family and the world at large in mourning the loss of Chadwick Boseman. Rest in peace, rest in power. Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List, talking about comics, a lot of them new, on sale September 2nd, 2020. I'm Ryan Panagos, aka HM. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Ooh, boy, Tucker, what a week we have in store for everybody. It's exciting, it's good. Uh, first things first, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm uh, currently holding down the fort on my lonesome. Uh, picture a New York City apartment living room, me inside of it, listening to the same K-pop song on repeat, practicing uh, the choreography from the music video. It took you a lot longer to break than I expected. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I thought this would have happened early to mid-May. So good yeah. on you. You're doing Thank great. Thank you. Hey, yeah. thanks. How yeah. you doing? I'm doing I'm doing well. I am uh, shot a video today. We had a great conversation. I was doing some fun stuff. My my mom took the baby on a trip to a farm to see some animals and get some time outside and let me do work like both myself and my wife just yeah do work it's great <laughs> i got stuff done it was wonderful um but that's that's life now and it's awesome uh what else is awesome a lot of comics for us to talk about so much today uh and we're gonna have an amazing guest someone who's a favorite of ours and i think a favorite of our listeners we have kelly thompson joining us writer of so many amazing titles including one at least one we're talking about today in the new books um but we are going to be talking with her about west coast avengers which rules so hard oh my god just the best i would advise any listeners to hit pause right now go read all 10 issues and now come back. Thank you for doing that. Now you're prepared for the best there is uh, with Kelly Thompson. You know what? Speaking of Kelly, why don't we get into the first book of the week, which is one of hers. Let's do it. Much anticipated, long awaited Black Widow number one from writer Kelly Thompson, artist Elena Casagrande, colorist Jordi Belair, and letterer VCs Corey Pettit. Um, uh, this is one of those kind of dream pairings, you know, it, it really feels like the start of something really, really amazing here. You know, this is one of those things where it's an issue number one. We have a lot of introductory ideas. We have some characters that pop in and out. It's a little bit tricky for me to talk about who those characters are. Cause I do want readers to have, um, totally fresh eyes coming into a book like this, especially a book like this that was delayed a little bit and so the anticipation has just built and built and built you know i would always imagine that um balancing a character like nat could be really difficult between um the various iterations of this character and between the various uh worlds that this character lives in whether that's her connections to her you know fellow heroes and friends like bucky and clint or whether that's her spy life um where she is this you know uh, you know world's greatest assassin character it's really really um you know it's a really difficult balance i would imagine to strike but of course i'm talking about with all of this is kelly's amazing ability to do that just perfectly um such an exciting start i also can't uh, let this go on without uh, just saying again, Elena Casagrande and Jordi Belair, incredible, 
incredible. The colors on this book, I think especially, are just amazing. Jordi, one of the best in the biz. Uh, this is a beautiful book. And it feels like one that, I don't know, I just, maybe it's my bias as being a huge Kelly Thompson fan, but I feel like I will in the future look back and say, yeah, that was the start of something great. Uh, it's just something you can feel, and, and it's really starting here. 110%. I, yeah. Friggin', this book is so good. Kelly is one of my favorite writers, you know, and it's like, she's so good. Every time she steps up to the plate, I feel like, it's like one of those home run swings where the batter swings and then doesn't even look where the ball goes. They just drop the bat <laughs> yeah, and start yeah, walking. Like yeah. they're, it's that good. She's so good and she's firing on all cylinders. And then you have Elena who has only done a handful of books at Marvel so far, less than ten before this, I think. And you know, it's it, she's done some other work elsewhere. This is like the spotlight book uh, for Marvel fans to see her and go. Oh, I found a new favorite artist. It's freaking mm -hmm. great. Uh, go out and pick up this book without question. Uh, all right. Another book we love from another person we love is Cable Number 4, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Phil Noto, letters by VCs Joe Sabino. Uh, you know, one of the things I love about Jerry's writing of Young Kid Cable is Cable's a little he is and like i love that aspect of him and you, he's like running around in this he's just getting into all kinds of trouble he makes terrible decision after decision it's so much fun reading this book uh and seeing like what he gets into and like you like hear his voice so well uh which is really wonderful like this book has grown on me every issue and now seeing him like getting into hijinks uh with the cuckoos and then there's a moment here with Emma Frost where she has this like uh, very stern, like authority figure, not going to take any of your crap moment that is beautiful and perfect and wonderful. All of this is wrapped up in like a giant sword story and the the Galadorian knights and, and all kinds of cool mix of mutant stuff and cosmic stuff, which is a lot of fun for the character of Cable that is mostly like war torn and like future stuff where there is some of that too. It's just, this book continues to be just a blast. Totally. And Hey, speaking of swords next up, we have empire number six. That's right. We are coming to the mega huge conclusion of empire. The story is by Al Ewing and Dan slot script on this one is by Al Ewing art by Valerio Schiti colors by Marte Gracia and letters by VCs, Joe Caramagna. Um, look with a major event story like this, I definitely want to stay away from spoilers. I will say though, there are so many different subplots going on in this story and have been for all of these issues, um, explored really, really wonderfully in my opinion in some of these tie-in uh, limited series that i've been a really big fan of uh we've raved about the captain america tie-in for example but um there is uh, great tony stark and reed richards stuff in here that is really integral to the story and that's something that i i was kind of continuously shocked by in a way um and i don't know why and i shouldn't be really because it's al ewing and dan slot um, but as I kept flipping through these pages, I kept being amazed by just what a great Fantastic Four story in particular this is. It manages to be that. It manages to incorporate the Avengers. Obviously, that's the one of the kind of very, very basic remits of this entire event. But it really manages to serve those teams and those characters in wonderful ways. Uh, there are just huge moments in this. It's been a really kind of fun exercise to read an enormous uh, event story like this on a weekly basis. It's been really, really cool. And it's allowed me personally to dig more and more into the emotional beats of the story. It's something that I think those colors come through even more vividly when you're reading this on a, a, every seven days. Uh, there is, you know, just really, I think, expert comics happening here. It's really, really incredible stuff. And look, at the end of the day, while I am speaking in generalities because I don't want to spoil spoil things, I will say this story does not end the way you think it's going to. That is, I think that's something that Alan Dan were talking about from the very beginning. Um, and I remember them talking about that in retreats and stuff like that. But 
there are big changes that emerge from this story. This isn't a kind of enter one way, come out through the same uh, uh, door kind of story. There are big moves being made here, and that's super exciting as well. Um, look, we could do an entire episode on this book alone, I think, and uh, it's really, really been just so much fun to see this and so much fun to experience, like I said, uh, on a weekly basis. Yeah. Um, you know, we still have more Empire to go, not just this week. We're going to have some more titles, uh, some Aftermath stuff. But this week mm-hmm. we have Fantastic Four, number 23, written by Dan Slott, art by Paco Medina, colors by Jesus Arpatov, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. This Empire tie-in really, like, threads right alongside the last couple of bits of what's going on in the main book. Um you, you actually see some stuff that is mirrored in the, the, the core title, which I think is helpful because if you are just a Fantastic Four reader, for some reason you haven't chosen to read Empire and you're just like, wait, what's happening? There's another story. I got some of it. It actually gives you like the core little beats that you would need to, to, to get the whole picture. But if you are reading Empire as a whole and you're, you're pulling in your tie-ins, this gives you that, but also gives you a, a big story that's happening on Earth as Franklin and Valeria uh, have teamed up with Spider-Man and Wolverine to help protect the um, the Skrull and Kree uh, orphans, the, the little kids that, that were saved early on in the story. Jovin and Nakala help them from just basically being murdered by the Kotati, those evil plant people. Uh, and so you get just a lot of great moments. There's, you know, like Wolverine um, sort of apologizing for stabbing somebody. I won't say who, but it's really cute and sweet. Uh, and and it's just a wonderful, nice wrap up to the Fantastic Four side of things. Uh, so it's, it's perfect if you aren't reading the main title, but it is definitely going to give you a little bit of extra juice if you are and you want something that tells you a couple of little stories that uh, we sort of caught up from the beginning. Totally. Um, hey, we are continuing with the cosmic action and uh, some more Al Ewing this week with Guardians of the Galaxy number six. This is written by Al Ewing with art by Marcio Takara, colors by Federico Bli, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Um, this is a very, very fascinating, very different issue of Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, one, I'll just say off the bat, um, Marcio Takara does an incredible job jumping in on this issue in a series that has very quickly developed a very distinct visual style. To come in and have Marcio do an issue like this um, and really make it um, its own unique thing, I, I think is uh, a credit to the entire team and definitely Marcio because uh, this is a really beautiful issue, but it really looks um, it really looks like its own thing. I think that's really great. Now uh, that that's been said, uh, there has been a lot of talk in recent years about Rich Rider, about Nova, about uh, Nova's place in the Marvel Universe, about where Nova's been, about where Nova should be. Uh, this issue, I think, for fans of Richard Ryder will be uh, a really great read. Uh, it's got, you know, the great Nova beats that you want, but it's a really emotional issue. It's a really interior issue um, because you really dig into this character's psyche, where this character's been, this character's place like I said, in the Marvel Universe right now, uh, let alone amidst the Guardians. So much packed in here, and it's really beautifully handled. Al knows these characters so well, um, and he's able to uh, take them in new and unexpected directions and really, really hit home with the heart of it all. Um, There's also great Gamora stuff. There's obviously been huge, huge moves for Gamora in um, just this year and uh, recent years as well. Um, There's some really, really beautiful stuff that we dig into in this issue. I think um, it'll be a welcome uh, uh, read for a lot of, uh, like I said, Nova fans, Gamora fans, Guardians fans. Really unique issue that I was super impressed by. Tucker, I found out something about one of the characters in Guardians of the Galaxy that I didn't realize ahead of time, but makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. And I say that now without being able to share that information whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's it's cool. I love yeah. like they they've been seeding stuff and Al has plans and it's it's really neat. Oh yeah. 
Um, what is also neat in the most horrific way possible is Marvel <laughs> Zombies Resurrection number one, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, who was on the show with us last week. If you missed it, uh, we talked a little bit about this book, but also some other work of his. But uh, this is a humdinger, and it is drawn by Leonard Kirk with colors by Rochelle Rosenberg and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. Man, I so I looked at the the PDF of this book really briefly ahead of time and i was like oh no superheroes in it interesting i'm excited to read it and then i put it aside because i remember the prelude book that came out last year and it was all about superheroes going and galactus and nightmare and oh my god it was horrific and then so i started picking up this book and i started reading it and i was like oh it's 100% got superheroes in it, but the world has gone to crap. Zombies are everywhere. It is a nightmare realm. And man, this is a really intense book. The, (laughs) like Philip was saying to us last week, you know, the original Marvel zombie story by uh, Kirkman and Phillips was great, but there's like a little bit of humor to it. It's like a gross out horror comedy in some ways, more horror than comedy, but still there's comedy to it. This is not a funny book. This is like pull at your heartstrings then cut them off and then floss with them and then like punch in the junk kind of book (laughs) and it works. It's really good. It's, you know, you've got a small group of stragglers, uh, some superheroes and super people you will know immediately once you meet them. I don't want to give anything away, but you follow them as they go through like trying to survive and trying to figure out what to do. And so you take your core zombie survival story and then you throw super people into it. And how do they break down? How do they survive? How do they protect each other? How do they find others? And like all these different questions that get asked, this is really, really good. It is disturbing and messed up and scary. And kind of like, if you like horror books, this is going to be the jam. All right. Next up this week, we have, Miles Morales, Spider-Man number 18. It's written by Saladin Ahmed with pencils by Carmen Carnero, colors by David Curiel, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Uh, We have a classic, old-school, Spidey doppelganger situation happening here, uh, and it is so exciting. One of my favorite things about Saladin, I think it's one of his great strengths among many as a writer, is his ability to put these you know incredible characters in incredible circumstances and then just follow it through logically and follow it through emotionally and really just say okay what would this person do as a person not as a superhero not as someone with incredible powers but what would they do um, just as a person how would they react obviously there are so many characters in this book that don't have superpowers so that's not even a question but still Saladin's ability to Balance all of that and just allow things to play out so organically in front of you, both in the, you know, the best moments, uh, moments that you love to see your characters go through, but also the moments that you love to hate to see them go through, uh, like this issue where there's a lot of traumatic, a lot of crazy, a lot of wild stuff that's happening, not just to Miles, but to Miles' parents, to everyone in Miles' circle. It's really, really cool to see. Um, This is one of those issues where you are right alongside the protagonist in asking what the hell is going Mm on. You are you are on this journey right alongside Miles, and I think it's so effective. Uh, At the same time, I will never let an opportunity go by to say how incredible Carmen Carnero is. Uh, I just think so perfectly cast on this book. This book gets huge in its action, uh, and those beats hit just so, so perfectly. I think Carmen's incredible, and um, I think this book is a perfect showcase of her abilities. So um, really, really cool entry to everything going in Miles, and it feels like this is a gateway into a much bigger story that we're about to get into. It's really cool stuff. Let's talk about New Mutants, number 12, written by Ed Brisson, pencils by Marco Faia, colors by Carlos Lopez, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. Globheads, get ready to go glob wild. Oh, this, yeah. is, this has got some primo glob stuff. Glob Herman, the big gelatinous boy of the X-Men, <laughs> uh, has 
some really heartrending and like amazing and wonderful stuff uh, in this issue. Man, it's just this book is so good. And you can tell how much Ed loves this character and loves being able to like talk about this character and, and give these emotional beats to this weird looking mutant. Um, and also it just feels like very resonant to the world at large and to some things that people go through. On top of that, you've got, you know, magic drinking at the Green Lagoon, which I love. Uh, you've got some some cool stuff happening with, you know, like a small group of the characters here in the team. Uh, and, you know, this book just we go into Ten of Swords next issue. But this one, like, I think is a great like look at why mutants are so like upset most of the time and why they want their own damn country. It's like, mm-hmm. just please, why? We're just people. Let us be. Yeah. Um, hey, some more big action on the way this week in Swordmaster number 10. It's written by Shuizu with art by Gunji, the adaptation written by Amy Chu, and letters by VC's Travis Lanham. Um, this is, you know, this is a huge story. It's a very different story. It's a very unique story. It's a, it's a story that is very personal to the character of Swordmaster, and that is my favorite thing. There is a wild action in here. Um, I think Gunji just pulls off this, uh, just one super kinetic, but two super horrific art, uh, really incredibly well. Um, there's, I think just a great design here, um, for the monsters that, uh, Swordmaster and everyone in this book has to deal with. Uh, it looks great and, uh, I love the, I love the motion to it. I love the way it moves. I love the way your eye moves. It's really, really cool. What's kind of pinning this whole story down in a similar way to what I was talking about with Miles Morales is, um, uh, the connection between, all of that horrific kind of superhero, supervillain, um, monstrous stuff, and the very personal story at the center of it all. The family story, in particular, with this book that's at the center of it all, uh, and that really connects you to everything that you're reading. It's good stuff. Yeah. All right. Last of the uh, brand brand new books this week is Wolverine number five, written by Benjamin Percy, art by Victor Bogdanovich, colors by Matthew Wilson, letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Uh, this is Wolverine versus vampires. I mean, like, come on. <laughs> how, how do you not want to read that? It's Benjamin Percy just getting grim and, like, nasty. Uh, Victor's art is so cool, especially with Matt's colors. There's this, like, texture to over over a lot of pages. You've got these cool, like, landscapes and vistas that uh, have this just film on them, it feels like. And then just really intense action like heads like being lopped off there's this amazing panel wolverine breaking through something and his eyes are stark white because he's just in berserker rage mode and it is terrific i just love wolverine and vampire stuff and this just feels like a taste of what's to come because we're going again like i mentioned with new mutants we're going into ten of swords but the vampire threat is very real and it feels like it's going to be hanging over Wolverine's head for a while. Oh, yeah. Uh, such great stuff there. I love that book. Uh, now we have a few issues that were previously released digitally that are now coming out in print. And the first one that we have uh, this week is Avengers of the Wastelands number five. It's written by Ed Brisson with art by Jonas Scharf, colors by Niraj Manan, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. Uh, this is, uh, the end of this limited series, Avengers of the Wasteland, come to conclusion here with issue number five. It's really fun for me to not just read this as its own self-contained limited series, which I've been a big fan of, and to get to explore the Wastelands I've like been able to do here, um, but to see the threads of, uh, character work that started in Dead Man Logan so long ago, it seems, um, because this is a story that Ed Brisson has been telling for a really long time with a few of these characters, uh, so to see and think back to then um, and uh, get to know, you know, remember how we were introduced to some of these characters, how we were introduced even to the Wasteland with Old Man Logan, you know, so many years ago, uh, and to see what threads Ed is pulling, what he's playing with here, and how it all comes together in this final issue is really, really fun stuff. Uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Another final issue here that came out previously is Hawkeye Freefall number six. We've talked at length about this book. We're actually going to talk about it a little bit more later in the show. It is written by Matthew Rosenberg, pencils by Otto Schmidt, letters by VCs Joe Sabino, and it rules. You've got Hawkeye versus Bullseye, Hawkeye versus The Hood. Uh, it is 
bloody and intense and funny and sad and it like propels clint in a really interesting direction we'll see how that takes off totally um and then the last one this week we have is ravencroft number four it's written by frank thierry with art by angel and zueta colors by rochelle rosenberg and letters by vcs joe sabino uh this is a story that i feel like has been picking up pace at uh, kind of a, a crazy exponential rate uh and it, that continues here it's uh you know this hive of darkness uh, with Ravencroft and then all the kind of cryptids that emerge from there is so much fun to just dive into and just swim around in. There's a lot happening here. Uh, a wild end to the book that I think is going to spin us in a new direction as we uh, wrap up this limited series. Really, really fun stuff um, happening with Ravencroft. And of course, like I always say with it, Frank Thierry is, of course, the man to tell this story. Yeah. Uh, Tucker, what do we have for collections and comic shops this week? Print collections this week include Amazing Spider-Man by Nick Spencer, Volume 8, Threats and Menaces, Black Cat, Volume 2, On the Run, Immortal Hulk, Volume 7, Hulk is Hulk, Old Man Hawkeye, The Complete Collection, Tarot, Avengers, Defenders, and Tomb of Dracula, The Complete Collection, Volume 4. Yo, those two of Dracula complete collections rule. Uh, I highly suggest those. Um, also on Marvel Unlimited this week, we've got 2020 Force Works number one. We've got Falcon and Winter Soldier number one, which is, that book is really cool. Um, there's uh, books that like are just one shots, but do not miss them. Fantastic Four, Grim Noir. Remember that book? Oh, oh so good. So, so damn good. And uh, Giant Size X-Men, Jean Grey and Emma Frost. That is terrific uh there's a lot more in marvel unlimited this week we'll make sure you can you just go on um, the app or go on the site get the full list um and books you can also read on marvel unlimited include west coast avengers which we are going to talk about now with writer kelly thompson kelly thompson how the heck are you I am as well as can be expected. <laughs> How about you? Fair. Good. Uh, my my mom took the baby on a road trip today, so it's been like wild. Wild. <laughs> Is that baby's first road trip? Uh, no, but she's, she's usually not gone for like five hours at a time. I'm okay with it. Everything's fine. We're all fine. <laughs> Everyone's fine here. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, boy. Uh, but, Kelly, we we asked you to come on the show and say, pick a book, whatever you like, a book that you love or a book that you worked on. And you Wait chose... a minute. Wait a minute. Let's just, <laughs> like, correct things from the start. I thought I was picking an exciting book that I loved. And I made a whole list. And then mm -hmm. in further emails, it was like, hey, why don't we do West Coast Avengers? And I was like, wait. I thought I was supposed to be picking something else. And then it was like, no, you can do either. And then just so you know, I was like, no, no, I'm, I've a, already put in some work. I'm thinking about what I want to do. Let's do that. But then I looked at my schedule and the Zoom thing we had yesterday. And then it's a really good thing that I changed my mind because my boyfriend ended up in the hospital for 10 days and it's been chaos. Oh, geez. So yeah. Is he okay? All right. oh, God. Okay. Yeah, he's all right. I brought him home Sunday. It wasn't COVID, thank goodness. Anyway, whatever we picked that wasn't my stuff, I was going to have to reread. And I talked to Matt and Ed, and I was like, I should pick something I love, right? And they're like, yeah, don't do your own stuff. Do something else. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, no, my schedule says no. <laughs> but honestly, I'm super excited to talk about it. I love it. I don't care what other people think. I love it. And I think it's the best first issue I've written for Marvel Comics yet. So there. Wow. Yeah. And and for listeners, when you offhandedly mentioned that you talked to, quote, Matt and Ed, if I'm not incorrect, I believe that those are of the Rosenberg and Brisson variety. <laughs> they are. Is they that are. correct? What do, what do you guys talk about? What are you guys, are you guys talking comics all the time? Are you talking everything? I, I'm fascinated by three of my favorite writers just hanging, chatting. What was that we like? We talk every single day. They're my best friends. I love them so much. Um, you know, we, we were already really good friends before we did Uncanny uh, X-Men. When I got put on that with them, I was so excited 
And I was like, oh my God, those are my two comics best, best friends. I'm so happy. And then I can't remember who said it, but someone was like, uh, are you sure you want to work with them on the book then? <laughs> like that can destroy people. <laughs> I was like, what? No, no, that's fine. And honestly, it just brought us closer. I think. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. I mean, they're great guys. They're okay. They're all right. I, you know, I like them okay. <laughs> medium, medium I, best. Yeah, I, I love Ed. He, he's a fellow Modoc head, and Matt is is a very good friend. So um, I'm I'm with you on this one. Um, you know, I was thinking about it because Kelly, without giving too much away, you were part of, and I was listening into the big editorial summit download that we had for Marvel Comics this week. You know, I won't say anything about the book, but there was one title that it was said to have a 60-page Bible presented with it in the pitch process. And I was like, I guess I forgot what pitches were like nowadays because I also had a conversation with someone recently who said the pitch for a book that they did was literally one sentence. And so I was like, (laughs) wait a minute, what's going on? (laughs) Whose reality is it? Kelly, what was the pitch like for West Coast Avengers? So... The the idea for doing West Coast Avengers was really before Hawkeye even ended. Sana and I were talking about it. And I felt like with Hawkeye, you know, I had such an incredible team, Leo Romero, Jordi Belair. We it just knew what it was from sort of day one. And we were just really loving it. And so, you know, I think Marvel was really like in a very nice way, like, let's try this again with like maybe a bigger cast and like maybe we can bring it in like what can it be and so there were talks before Hawkeye when it was sort of we knew it was ending but it was still winding down about what could that be and when we sort of landed on West Coast Avengers I think it was Sana who said maybe it should be like you know superheroes meet sort of Parks and Rec and I was like (laughs) there you go that's it like that's the thing that I feel like I can drill into that I really love, like a like a mockumentary style, this comedy book. They can go on these crazy weird adventures that are sort of West Coast Avengers and maybe next wave style, like wackiness to them. And so that was when Sana said that, which so maybe that goes a little bit to your one line thing. Like she hooked me with that one line. And then people were really responding to that like this idea that they didn't have funding and that that was creating these problems for them and that they weren't, you know, they didn't have unlimited access to everything the way the Avengers did. But, you know, there was so much back and forth. There was a lot of arguing about who the characters should be and like how it would all fit together. And it was honestly, it was um, a really great advocation for the, the Marvel summits and like what it can do sometimes to really be like, you can do a lot of stuff, all spread across the country via email and calls and whatever. But there is there is a, a benefit to being in the same room sometimes. And it was only when Tom, Alana, and I were sitting in the same room that it finally clicked for me, sort of like what I wanted had been sort of in opposition to some things they wanted. And I sort of couldn't see their side of it. Like I couldn't quite get the picture to understand like how we were missing each other, sort of ships passing in the night kind of thing. And it was when we sat down and talked about it then that I finally got like a little bit what they were going for with some of the characters and stuff. And it clicked for me and I was like, okay, now I know how to write it. I was like, I got it. I got it. And they're like, great. Cause it's really the last minute at this point. Like, you have to hurry. I'm like, I know, I know. I'll write it as soon as I get home. But like it took that, you know, like Gwen was a big question mark for me because even though I think the character is fantastic and they really wanted her in there because she's got this wackiness and she's this real fan favorite that's got this great fan base to me looking at the character I was like I don't really see how she works in a team setting and that ended up being the trick for me and one of the things that I regret about where we ended is just I didn't get to continue exploring this to its fullness but you know the idea for Gwen fitting in this role sort of became it doesn't work for her to be on a team and once she's not the star she doesn't have as much control of the narrative and I was like now that's really interesting like that's something we can play with that's something we can get into so like there were a lot of like really little magical sort of things happening as we were putting it together and it was really exciting it was scary too but it was exciting I really under I really totally it strikes a chord with me when you talk about how 
you had some questions about incorporating a character like Gwenpool into a teen book. Um, and we've heard, you know, different writers talk about this, uh, about this dynamic, not just with Gwenpool, but with a bunch of different characters between writing a solo comic versus writing a teen comic. Um, we've heard Donnie talk about it. We've heard a bunch of different people talk about how it has different challenges. Could you talk a little bit about, in your eyes, what the... Um, what skills are kind of needed for those two different books or if it's even that different if it's more just a a, a mindset shift i think it is a it is a big difference because you know if you look at let's use captain marvel as an example because that's a solo book that i've been writing for a long time now and that people really seem to be into and i try really hard i'm really interested especially when it comes to female characters in like power sharing and sort of sisterhood. And so I tend to like to bring in other characters and have Carol both rely on them and trust them and also be generous with her own power. But at the end of the day, that book is still called Captain Marvel. You want to see Carol solving the problem. But when you're doing something like West Coast Avengers, that has to be a more genuine sharing of the role. I mean, our book was certainly led by Kate and we had Clint there as sort of a guiding force too. But if you're not distributing some equality among those people, I think readers feel sort of ripped off a little bit. And I don't know that they're wrong. Like one of my biggest regrets because we ended so early on West Coast Avengers is that I was trying to do a really slow burn on the sort of America Ramon relationship and because of that, I just barely got them together and then we didn't really get to explore it. And so if I had had the gift of hindsight, I would have pushed that sooner um, so that we could make sure to really spend more time with it and like help get fans really anchored to the idea before we had to leave it. I hadn't been planning on the Gwen and Quentin thing. It just sort of happened with one of those magical things where the characters were just sort of the way they were connecting on the page was like really fun. And so that became this this B or C plot line. And because of that, it took me longer to get to the America stuff. And that's a great example of sort of, you have to make those choices. And so I'm not saying I did the wrong thing, but in retrospect, knowing what I know now, I would definitely go back and like rebalance that so that I could do it earlier. Uh, well, let, let's actually talk about the characters in West Coast Avengers because it is a team book and there's a bunch of characters here. Uh, you mentioned that this does follow the book, the Hawkeye book that you did and some of the characters uh, came out of that. So let's run down the, the team a little bit. So we have Kate Bishop. Um, what do you love about Kate? Oh, gosh. I think I love <laughs> everything about Kate. Uh, that would be a shorter list of what I don't like. But the thing I like most about her is, you know, People talk a lot about the things about she and Clint Barton that are different, but I'm more interested in the things about them that are the same. Like they sort of never give up, even when it's ridiculous, even when it's stupid, They're like always covered in bandages. Like what, what kind of person is it that's like, no, I'm, I have no superpowers and I'm completely vulnerable, but I'll just stand next to, you know, Iron Man and Captain America and fire my arrows. Like, what, it, what does it take to be that kind of person inside, to be that vulnerable and still be that heroic that you're like, nah, it's fine. It's fine. Me and some arrows <laughs> against like a planet eating threat. It's okay. <laughs> and, and then they're successful. They're so great at it. So I love them. I love that about them. Uh, so we, we have the two Hawkeyes. And, and in this read through, I don't know, Tucker, I don't know what you like. There's many things to like connect to in additional read throughs of a book. For me, it was like, man, I love the way you write Clint, Kelly. Like, I of course love your Kate and your America, but I was like, man, I could read a whole just Clint book by you and be happy, although I would want all the other characters too. But I was like, <laughs> man, your Clint is so like, I don't know. I think that what I, what I was like putting dishes away this morning, I was like, this is my platonic ideal of a superhero book. <laughs> this has everything and it's, it was great it was it was a lot of fun i think i think we're in like a a golden age of quietly amazing clint barton stories between this between hawkeye freefall i'm sure there's a couple other ones in there it's just like under the radar if you know you know that these are like 
you know, top tier, yeah. top tier story. I, I would love to write a Clint Barton Hawkeye book, but honestly, Matt and Otto killed it so hard on Hawkeye Freefall. I just love it. It's it's funny when I read Matt's Hawkeye, it's like it feels perfectly Clint Barton to me, and I can hear it. But I can like also sort of hear Matt like under it <laughs> a little bit because I know him so well. Oh, I love it. It just warms the the, the dead cockles of my heart. <laughs> uh, you mentioned America Chavez a little bit about her being so powerful. Is that does that present any problems for you as a writer? It does for me. That's definitely a weakness for me. Working with Carol for so long has helped a lot because she's incredibly powered. But when you're working with a character that's just got so much power, it's like sometimes, I don't know, I feel like someone like Al Ewing is such like a good cosmic writer. You throw powers at him and he's like, yes, let me reinvent the world with those powers. And for me, I'm like, really? Can they be more like Hawkeye? And they're not geniuses and they're not great at everything because that's a little more in my wheelhouse. <laughs> but the, the street level thing comes a little more naturally to me. Um, and particularly when you put someone like America who's got so much power on a sort of unbalanced team like West Coast Avengers. I mean, I, I don't think it's a bad idea because I think it creates those interesting conflicts and the challenges for me as a writer, hopefully I can rise up to meet them. But yeah, she's so powerful. Like it's it's hard to even comprehend. I mean, when you're talking about things like you can teleport anywhere in the galaxy and then your friends got bow and arrows, but so you try and lean into that stuff, right? Instead of run away from it. And most of the time it works and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> uh, we have Johnny, aka Fuse, who is Kate's uh, boyfriend, who has cool power of like the like absorption of materials and... Like, was your idea to give him the um, the the piercings that were vibranium? Yes. Yeah. I love and that. I saw people complaining about those those piercings before we revealed that they were vibranium and that that was what he was using them for. First of all, those piercings look rad, so I don't know why people are complaining about them. Second of all, I've never like yelled at my laptop screen more than when I saw people complaining and I wanted to be like, you just wait, you're going to be wrong. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, I loved that. And I was glad we at least got to do a little bit of the origin showing that their mother was from, uh, was from Wakanda and that that's maybe how he got his hands on vibranium. So, but yeah, I thought that the the piercings was a particularly clever way for someone who's got that power to to keep himself uh, connected at all times, right? Yeah. Uh, and when you were, you know, speaking of, uh, we would also mention Ramon, who sort of joins the team by the end of the book. Was her was that always your plan for her as well, and getting these that really cool look? Um, well, I mean, obviously I have to credit artists on like the actual pulling off of it. Um, I, I think it turned out super cool. I did want to me, I, I know some people are going to have issue with this cause I'm, I'm sure there are people out there who love this, but to me, the quickest way to make sure a character's not going to stick is to not give them powers. And so I felt like Ramon's fate was sealed uh, as Kate's best friend, at, or one of Kate's best friends, as America's potential love interest, if she didn't have powers, she wasn't going to last. Um, there's a long line of human casualties, and I don't mean they're dead. I just mean they disappear into obscurity. And I don't even, I don't even think there's anything wrong with that. Like we're telling superhero stories, and so I felt it was really important that that Ramon have powers if we wanted to really see her go the distance and, and for other writers who came after us to see the potential to use her for something. And I, I do love something a lot about a brother and sister who have powers that are sort of related, but different. Like I love all that stuff, but I wanted to, there to be good reason for her to have not done this before in her life and to give her that great heroic moment of like, even though I'm afraid of this and I've been avoiding it my whole life, the people, the most important things in my life are now in jeopardy. And so I'm making this choice. And I thought it ended up being really, even though there wasn't a lot of time, I, I was really proud of where we ended up there. Uh, and let's round up the cast because we, we talked about Gwenpool a bit and, you know, how cool she is. Uh, but on the flip side of Gwenpool is Quentin Quire, who is such a, like a wild card on this team that I, I just love. Why Quentin? 
Uh, I think that was Alana. I think Alana, we were talking about cool characters that were available that might be interesting and that were sort of fit our sort of wacky team. And so the the challenge there was a like America, he's incredibly powerful. So you got to deal with that. So you've got these sort of unpowered people, and then you've got a new guy who's got great powers but doesn't know how to use them yet. And then you've got Gwenpool whose powers are a question mark. And then you've got these two super powerful, like Omega level characters, right? So that was a problem. And also, how did we get him on there? Like, why on earth would he? agree to work with these guys we know he's going to complain about it all the time so like what are we going to do and so that was how we got in there with like the tv angle and like they sort of need each other even though they you know he wants to be a star still he wants to do this thing he's not allowed to do it on his own basically so that was sort of how we got that in one of the great things was that in that first issue you know stefano is such an incredible artist but he had drawn quentin with like this sweater vest and I think it was Alana that was like, why don't we just knit the saying into the sweater vest? I was like, I can't love that more. <laughs> so it was really fun. We were having a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, we, of course, see Lucky, the the dog that uh, is with Kate. People are like, where's Lucky? Every issue asking me until I brought him in. I'm like, fine. Here he is. We did it. Everyone be quiet now. All right. <laughs> so you, you say that with that, that tone there, but... Now, you also introduce Jeff the Landshark, and I think from now on, if you don't have Jeff in a book, people are going to be like, where's mm -hmm. Jeff? Mm -hmm. Listen, Lucky taught me the lesson. People get super attached to those pets. Um, I love Lucky. He's incredible. I love dogs. They're incredible. And Jeff really came about because one of the land sharks that Stefano drew in the first issue looks very concerned. It looks very concerned to be a land shark and to be on land having to attack things. Uh, and I, it just got me thinking about what are these land sharks thinking? Like, it's not really their fault. And so it was that combined with, I have these two amazing cats. And so to me, Jeff is sort of a cat and a land and this concerned land shark. Um, it, it, I, I should note just for, for for the people who really care about these things the concerned land shark is not actually jeff because that's much larger than jeff but that was the impetus for the idea of how jeff came to be born one of the greatest things ever was was when i was realized that there was this perfect opportunity to bring him into deadpool and how much fun could we have with that and gosh it's turned out so great and man he's really exploded he got it as an action figure he's only been live for like a year and he got his action figure it's crazy I have them in a box uh, in, in, in the house. So. <laughs> I ordered it. I haven't gotten it yet, though. Um, but Sorry, Tucker. I know I keep uh, saying things, but um, I want to make sure I understand this correctly. The land sharks were created by MODOK. Is that yes. correct? Well, so, Brodoc. Well, Brodoc. Technically. Sure. Same thing. So one of the fans' favorite creations in the last couple of years is a result of the greatest character of all time, Modoc. I just want to make sure everybody who listens understands correct. that that's true. 100% <laughs> correct. I also love Modoc. Yeah. I mean, that's how you end up with Brodoc. It's because you love Modoc. And then Alana is hilarious and helps you create a guy. With... My favorite part of that design is that his head is still slightly big. Oh, it's so good. So good. Right? Oh. When, when Steveno turned it in, I was like, yes, he nailed it. <laughs> I was like, I'm so glad I can use this joke about like, did he still make his head slightly big? Like, what is that about? <laughs> um, the, you know, speaking of Alana, I actually wanted to ask about Alana specifically, but as we were running down the characters, um, I when I was opening up the issue one when I was going back to to read, I just I just love this solicit text. I, I you know we don't spend a lot of time talking about solicit text and probably rightly so on the show, but it's so good and, and uh, it just says a new era dawns. Hawkeye, Kate Bishop, Hawkeye, Clint Barton, a guy named Fuse. Never have they ever been called the big three of anything. <laughs> and here they are, reunited for, okay, well, only the second time ever. It's so good. And it just immediately like made me just so excited to dig back into the humor of this. But speaking of Alana and speaking of, so let's take all the kind of editorial responsibilities and things like that. Could you talk just about working with Alana? You know, 
I, I for me, we never get the chance to talk about the editorial staff enough. And uh, I think Alana is just a star. It's Alana Smith. Make sure Alana Smith. Yes, Alana yes, Smith. yes. Oh, yes. Make sure everyone knows. Yeah, uh, Alana's great. I, you know, I've done. I would say I think my Jessica Jones runs are sort of the strongest work I've ever done for Marvel. Combining that with uh, what I think is the best first issue I ever did for Marvel, i.e. West Coast Avengers number one, I think Alana is a great editor for me. I think she brings out some of the best in me. She's amazing. She's amazing. And especially because on West Coast Avengers, it was such a trial to get to that first point. There was such a push and a pull. She was such, she was so gentle with me about, you know, we were sending back all these big long lists of characters and like classic characters and new characters and like finding that balance. I mean, really, it was a very long process on this book of like getting the mix right. But you know, she was always so, she was always so good about it. Like she was, she's up for anything. And even when she was pushing characters on me, like Quentin and Gwenpool, because she thought, you know, because she rightly thought these characters help the book because we're going to need every bit of, you know, excitement we can get because we're doing this book that is perfect for some people, but there are other people who want a West Coast Avengers book to be something else. So we're going to need all the help we can get. And, um, you know, she was just so great in sort of finding that balance, um, you know, for every writer between what they need to be doing and what they want to be doing. I mm. think that's one of the hallmarks of a great editor is being able to find that balance to create the best book. You know, I, I talk about this thing sometimes where like, I feel like if you read comics enough, you can flip through a book and instantly get a sense of maybe not the fine points of its qualities, but its quality in general. I think you can instantly get a sense of the rhythm of what the writer is doing in terms of maybe the character's placement in the larger story and when you're hitting character beats, when you're hitting big dramatic beats. And this issue just is a masterclass, uh, in my opinion, of pacing and rhythm because uh, we open up in, uh, you know, with Clint and just one instantly, Stefano is, he's incredible because he's like, he can do, of, he does like Avengers and Marauders and like these crazy stories now that are like the biggest, most intense um, uh, kind of action packed stories. Incredible. He's also so funny. There's just these little moments packed into every single panel of amazing acting that is hilarious. And it's these little quiet moments. It's so impressive. But from there, we go straight into um, the whole Landshark sequence, um, which is like your kind of get to know the team. Like, all right, everybody get in here kind of moment. And it's so, so good. Um, when you're writing when you're writing this issue... It's 30 pages. Um, do you know, like, all right, we're starting here and we need to, you know, check all these boxes. We need to do the intros. We need to do this. We need to do this. We need to introduce the big villain. Um, do you find yourself uh, self-editing a lot, knowing that there's so much to do? Or is that kind of uh, uh, just a fun playground for you to um, set up these beats and, 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 and dig into it? Well, honestly, I'm a huge fan of 30 pages for a first issue. To me, every issue, you know, the challenge for, for, for writers is to create these things that really don't go together, right? Which is you want an arc that reads smoothly and that feels like one cohesive story, but you also need the individual pieces to have their own internal arcs of rising and falling action and ideally a sort of hooky cliffhanger at the end to make sure people come back for the next issue. And those things are opposed. So finding the way to make them fit in the best possible <laughs> like combination is a real is a real art. But there's also just formula to that. And you know, the formula helps you, but you also have to sort of know when to break out of it. I think in West Coast One, the the 30 pages really saved our lives because we wanted to get the whole team together in the first issue. We wanted 
I wanted two action scenes because I knew I wanted the land shark set piece as like an opening thing to like really get us right into the action. But then we also needed a, the whole team came together and here's the actual threat we're dealing with. And yes, it's connected to the first threat, but whatever. So we needed all of that. But we also needed really a good introduction to these characters above and beyond just getting them into the book. It's like, what can they do? What's the dynamic here? We also had to set up this you know, TV show. We had to set up this mockumentary style, which to me, I, you know, I don't want all comics using that because it will be overused very quickly, but it's honestly shocking that more don't find a way to use that interview scenario because it is such a great insight into character and also comedy, uh, but you could make it tragedy as well because you've got that sort of disarming interview scenario, but then you don't have to just be in characters' heads all the time with their caption, which in a team book, I hate that. But the, the mockumentary allows you to have that one-on-one -on -one time with those characters where you can get inside their heads and see what's making them tick without having to do it in caption boxes. And so we had a lot of demands and I, I feel like, I, this is why I think it's the best first issue I've ever written because I feel like we met all those formula demands that we needed to meet, but we still got to have like a four page spread of Kate interviewing losers we're maybe never gonna see again. <laughs> and so we like, I, that issue more than any other to me feels like we had our cake and we got to eat it too. Like we got both, the best of both worlds. And a lot of that goes down to um, Triona and Stefano uh, just really being, incredible you know the amount of love i get for that book though of people who found it later is very very sweet but also sort of heartbreaking because they're like why didn't i know about this book and i'm like i don't know <laughs> like i all i did was talk about it for months i don't know i don't know what to tell you you know but i don't know there's something there's something wonderful about finding a comic you didn't know existed though right like and just loving it like that's that's good too yeah, I, you know, we, we know that a lot of our listeners will come to find books because of we talk about them here. And I, Tucker and I have both come to books for the first time because of conversations we've had with creators, you know, in, on the show or whatever. So it's however they come to it, you know, eventually they'll come to it. And it's there's there's something very sweet about that. And I also think, you know, while we were in the retreat recently and there were somebody was talking about well, what do we get out of this story? And that idea of like, you tell these stories and they're great, but what what do you add to the Marvel Universe as opposed to killing someone or doing something and taking away? And I look at a book like this and I think this adds so much. It, it, it adds this, one, you've got land sharks, then you've got Jeff the land shark, then you've got this wild different opportunity of, of like, someone could come back to Brodock if they wanted to at some point. You've got that. You've got, you know, like the growing of Tigra, which I think is such a, a cool way to like expand on her. You've got the, you know, uh, fuse and, and alloy and you've like, there's so much added to the Marvel Bridget universe. Bridget the dragon. Bridget, yeah, I was just looking at a panel of her. Like there's a dragon that's a woman that's flying around Los Angeles living her best life. Yeah. Please God, someone use it. Yeah, and like you even see her pop in, like her eyes in the in the window at the end of this the series it's like the the if nothing else the legacy of this book is adding to the marvel universe and adding to the tapestry and in such wonderful oh, ways that uh, means a lot thank you and i yeah you're welcome we mean it we like genuinely i was so happy to to be able to revisit this and, and get to talk to you about it so it's it's great for us <laughs> but we are running out of time with you um one thing i want to know is what was the book that you would have talked about had we talked about something you Ooh. loved? Um, I had narrowed it. There were a lot of things on my list, including talking about maybe the early, the original Alias stuff. Um, but I think I was going to talk about, because maybe it's a little bit of a swerve, but also fitting for West Coast Avengers in a weird way. Um, I was going to talk about the Alan Davis written, drawn Excalibur run. Ooh. Like 24 issues or something in there. I love that stuff so much. And honestly... It's not, when you think about West Coast Avengers, like you can see that. You can mm -hmm. see that I was a teenager who loved that wacky, weird, like what's weirder than TechNet? Like what? what are <laughs> and that TechNet story that I'm thinking about starts with them getting blown up by a little duck that comes out of an egg. Like it's crazy. It's just the weirdest stuff. I love it. 
It's, I love it's it. So very strange. Uh, one of there's an Excalibur issue in that run. I don't remember what number. It might be like 56 or something. Where it's got the X Men on the cover and they're like talking to. It's it's like breaking the fourth wall. It's really silly mm-hmm. and uh, over the top. And I is one of the first like comics I got when I like really started to think about comics. And yeah, that that book has a place in my heart. You know, maybe when your schedule allows, we'll have you come back and we can talk about it. I'd love to. Oh I'd yeah. Love to. I'd always come back to you guys. Yeah. <laughs> we try. We have a good time. <laughs> Kelly, thank you so much. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. I had a great time. Big thanks again to Kelly. Um, Kelly rules. That's it. Like, that's all you need to know. Forget that's it. Full stop. Yep. Uh, this episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, MR Daniel, and Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton was, like, trying to be a Brodoc, but he's not really Brodoc. He's more like No Doc. Oh. No Doc. <laughs> no doc anyway i'm ryan and i'm tucker and this is marvel your yours